No pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. Last year, my darling wife, Melissa, got me a very different kind of gift for my birthday. It wasn't exactly a gift that I wanted, but it was a gift that I sorely needed. She booked me 10 sessions with a personal fitness trainer. And over those 10 grueling sessions, I found out in no uncertain terms just how unfit I really am as I started to feel muscles and nerves that I never knew I had before. As Fendi, my trainer, got me to stretch and lean and push and strain in ways I didn't think were humanly possible. Now, Fendi, my trainer, he was a nice guy. He was very supportive in the midst of the pain, but he was also very determined. Over those 10 sessions, he became a real adversary to me, forcing me to endure workouts I really didn't want to do. And every time I came this close to packing it in, crying out to him after about eight minutes of warm-up, that's enough. Maybe we'll just, you know, go, let's go for the next day. He would spur me on with these words, no, 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 Tim, no pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. You see, he knew that as painful as the, the workouts might have been, they were good for me. They would turn out for my health in the end. So we come to this chapter in Hebrews this morning. We see a church in great need of encouragement as they endure much hardship. If you were here last week, we saw how they were encouraged to press on in faith, trusting God's promises them to Christ and so living with Christ as Lord, no matter what, sticking with him. We were given those examples of Old Testament saints who had gone before them who had at times suffered greatly for their faith in God's promise, culminating in Jesus himself. Look back to 12 verse 2. And we were told last week, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. We left off last week with that great encouragement. Continue looking to Jesus, who laid down his life, who endured the shame of the cross, so that he might know and enjoy his Father's rest and bring us sinners into it as well. And as we continue from verse 3, again, this church is encouraged to press on in the midst of their struggle for Christ. Let's come to our first point in verses 3 to 4. The struggle is real. The struggle is real. Read with me from verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that that, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's the danger for this church right now, growing weary for living for Christ. The trials that they're enduring are really getting to them. We're given a clue as to what they were facing earlier in the letter. Back in 10 verse 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. And this church had started out well. They had endured those trials faithfully, loving Christ in a world that was hostile to him and so hostile to them. 
as his people. But now their zeal is fading as the struggle continues. They're tired. Some of them are even tempted to pack it all in. I wonder perhaps this morning right now, is that how you feel as a Christian? You love Jesus, but pressing on for him right now, it is just bringing more and more in the way of opposition and hardship that is painful. People that we care about, whose opinions that we value are giving us a hard time because we are putting Christ first as we should, and we're discouraged. We're getting tired. And my friends, if that is not you today, I promise you it will be sooner or later as you persevere for Christ. Here in these verses, we are given a vital reminder to keep us from becoming overly discouraged when we are called to suffer real opposition for our faith. Before we get to that reminder, though, the Hebrews here, they're given a reality check. See in verse 4? In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. See, as difficult as this struggle was for them right now, The author reminds them, well, Jesus, your Lord and Savior, he still knew far, far worse for your sakes. Now, before this week, I'd always thought the struggle here in verse 4, your your struggle against sin, I always thought that was talking about our personal battle with sin in our hearts as Christians, you know, battling our sinful nature, not wanting to go back to that old way of living away from Christ as Lord. But actually, now, having spent some time in these verses, I don't think that's what's primarily in view here. This struggle against sin in verse 4, see how we're told it's described towards the end of verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's what Jesus endured at the hands of sinners against him from the outside. Not the battle against sin within the heart that we know. Of course, as God's people, we do have to resist the temptation to sin, to to renounce Christ when the going gets tough. But the struggle here, it's more to do with enduring opposition as God's people when we are called to face it. And for the Hebrews, well, they're reading this letter, which means they're still very much alive. The struggle hasn't got so bad that they've needed to literally lay down their lives as Christ did for them. Even so, it's still real, and it's still painful. And this church, it seems, has forgotten a vital truth to sustain them in the midst of their hardship, this vital reminder we have here to keep us going in our faith in the face of opposition. Let's come to our second point. God disciplines those he loves. And firstly, we see the necessity of his discipline. Read with me from verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Back earlier in chapter 3, this church was told, look, if Christ is yours, if you're depending on him and living for him now, then you are sons of God with him. You are members of God's household. You will receive the inheritance that Christ the Son deserves. Life in his house, in his eternal kingdom. And here again in verse 5, their sonship is affirmed. They're not to think for a second that because they're going through a struggle... Because they're facing opposition for Christ, 
Suddenly, God is not with them. Suddenly, God does not care about them. No, actually, it's the very opposite. We've got this quote from Proverbs 3, verse 11, here in verse 5, where an Israelite son is being addressed by his father. He's being taught wisdom for life. We saw earlier in our Old Testament reading, Proverbs 3, it's full of both encouragement and warning. There's a continual encouragement to entrust yourself to the Lord, to acknowledge him in all of our ways. And then there's this warning that we have repeated here as well. Don't be overly discouraged when the Lord's instruction is painful. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Our word discipline here, God's discipline, it isn't purely negative. It's not just concerned with being scolded when we go wrong. Now, the word for discipline here is much broader than that. It's the same word translated in other parts of the scripture, like 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, as training, instruction. And we're told the Lord disciplines, he trains, he instructs the ones whom he loves. All we're being told here is that God is allowing this church to actually endure painful opposition for Christ because he loves them. And because he seeks to train them up, to grow them up in maturity of faith as their children. Now, before we think that's a very bizarre way for God to behave towards us as his people, God loves us by putting us in the face of opposition. Well, let's remember what we've already seen of God's dealings with Jesus, his one and only son. What have we already seen back in Hebrews 2 verse 10? For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. How did God love and ultimately glorify his son? How did he show Jesus to be the awesome savior who who he really is, who can redeem us from the power of sin and death? The founder of our salvation was made perfect, shown to be perfect through suffering, hardship, trial, ultimately laying down his life at the hands of his enemies. It was only through that great suffering that he was shown to be our perfect and able Savior and King. And so now for us who have been adopted into God's family by faith in his blood, blood. The Hebrews here, as God's sons in him, inheritors of eternal life with him, they were experiencing the same kind of loving, but yes, painful discipline. Verse 7, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. In fact, if we're not being called to endure any kind of hardship, any kind of hostility at any time for Christ, over the course of our lives, we actually need to watch out. Because this discipline we're told here is part and parcel of the Christian life. See the end of verse 7? For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
Now, I, I realize that a term like illegitimate children can be very hard for some of us here this morning to hear. That might hit a raw nerve for us, depending on our family circumstances. If we grew up in a broken home, if we were even labeled wrongly by others as illegitimate children. But this verse here, it's not speaking into our physical relationships to family or absence thereof. We're being assured of the love of our Heavenly Father here. It's about our relationship with Him. If we do know God as our Heavenly Father, we will experience His loving correction and instruction in our lives. And sometimes that will take the form of opposition that we'll be called to endure. If opposition from this world is entirely absent from our lives as Christians, if we are never made to feel uncomfortable for our faith and love for Christ and seeking to put Him first, then we do need to ask ourselves, are we really living with Christ as Lord, trusting in Him and so obeying Him faithfully? Do we really know God as our Father through faith in His blood? Because here we're being told there is no such thing as the trial-free life for the Christian. And what an amazing encouragement that was for this church. For us, if we are enduring opposition for our faith right now, it's a sign that you do belong to God. That He does love you and cares for you deeply. It's a sign of His necessary discipline. And our response should be to willingly respect And so submit to him, even as we are called to endure it. The response to his discipline. Come to verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Now again, I know this won't be true for all of us here this morning. My heart goes out to those of us here today who did not know our fathers at all, or who sat under abusive fathers, fathers who failed miserably in their duty to nurture and train us for life in this world. What we're being given in verse 9 is the ideal, not sadly the case that is the reality at all times. A father who disciplined his children as he should in a right way and so was shown due respect for it. And I knew the blessing of such a dad. I didn't know him for too long. He passed away when I was just eight years old. But in the years that I did know him, he was an amazing father. He was fair. He was kind. He did not spare me from the discipline, the instruction that I value today in life, even painful as it was at times. I don't know how it is in your household or how it was in my household. If my dad got involved in a dispute between me and my little sister, we'd be naughty in some way. If my dad got involved, it was serious. All right? My mum was the first line of discipline. My dad was the last line of discipline. But his correction was still, as, as painful as it was at times, and I really didn't like it, I look back and I see how it was so full of love, so full of concern to build me up in right character for life. And myself my sister, we love him dearly to this day for it. We trusted And we still do trust in his counsel that he gave to us. Given that this is the ideal for our earthly homes, look at the end of verse 9. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
My dad's loving care for me was great, but it was tame compared to the love we've known from God in Christ. The one who gave us life and then redeemed us back from sin and death that we deserve by the precious blood of his one and only son. Given that now he has become the father of our spirits, yours and mine, who has brought us out from the darkness of sin and into life in his eternal kingdom, how much more should we respect his discipline now while we wait? How much more will we live? Obeying him even when it hurts. I know the temptation to deny Christ and to pretend I don't really know him when the going gets tough, when we're oppressed by family and friends for our faith. But as we do seek to submit faithfully, even in the hard times, we know it will turn out for life in his rest in the end. That brings us to our Next point, the benefits of his discipline, verses 10 to 11. And it's still speaking of earthly parents here, verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. I mean, that's the case for us who are parents here this morning, isn't it? Who have kids. I've been a father for six years. There have been so many times already, so many occasions when my wife, Melissa, has had to kind of gently or maybe even not so gently point out to me, Look, Tim, Josiah is still a young kid. Stop expecting so much from him. He, he doesn't understand why you get so excited about certain constructions in New Testament Greek, no matter, how, no matter how much you try to explain it to him. He can't wash the car yet to your ridiculous standards, no matter how hard you try. But seriously, no. If we are parents, we know so well how often we get it wrong. As we seek to train our own children the best, as much as we love them and the best that we intend for them, we have a Father in heaven who knows exactly what we need according to his perfect judgment. And he disciples us perfectly according to his best aim. See how verse 10 continues. But he disciplines us for our goods, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful, Rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's God's greatest aim for us in love. What he knows is best for us, as painful as it might be at times, that we may share in his holiness. That our lives would yield this peaceful fruit of righteousness. There's two ways of describing the same wonderful result, I think. See, as we endure faithfully in the face of opposition... For Christ and remain faithful to him, we actually grow to be more like him. We share more in his holiness. We grow more in his righteous character, becoming more and more the people God has saved us to be. For he was the one who was made perfect through suffering. As he never faltered, as he never failed to fear and love God in the midst of every ounce of opposition. As he loved his enemies, even as they mocked him and beat him, as he endured the shame of the cross. And so, as we endure hostility for his sake, well, we too grow in his holy character. How can we love our enemies that God calls us to love and show forth the love of Christ in that way if we have no enemies to face? How can we learn to cry out to God as Christ did and know his able arm to sustain us if we know nothing of the opposition Christ faced. This is how we grow. 
Personally, I find it's usually when I face hostility for Christ. Those are the times I'm quick to get down on my knees and pray, to take heart that my security is in him and his eternal kingdom and not in the fading securities of this world, but in those calmer, more peaceful days and months, as enjoyable as they can be, I do find I can get complacent. I can be slower to pray, to recall that Christ is my greatest worth, that his kingdom is where we're heading, we'd be living for that. Take heart in the heat of opposition because it's what God uses to build up his church. Uh, That was seen very powerfully during the 20th century in mainland China, back when with Mao's uprising, all of the foreign missionaries were suddenly forced to either flee, to leave, or, or, or to face death. And they were convinced having to leave so rapidly, so quickly, that the fledgling church in China that they had spent years seeking to support and nourish and sustain, it would just get stamped out. They were allowed to return decades later with relative security. And what did those same missionaries find? A flourishing church. It had endured much in the way of persecution. Yes, it had been painful, but as they had faithfully persevered, God had used their witness to grow them up both in faith, maturity, and number. So much like what we read of in Revelation 12, verse 11. How do we as God's people overcome Satan and the world? Let me read it. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They loved not their lives even unto death. There is great gain in the midst of our afflictions for the sake of the gospel. God uses such times to grow us up that we might be shaped more to be like Christ. Take heart. Take heart when you are ridiculed by your own flesh and blood for refusing to worship your ancestors in your love for Christ. Take heart when you're humiliated by your peers for refusing to join in the office gossip for your love for Christ. Take heart when you're opposed by those in authority for refusing to take or give the bribe out of your love for Christ. Take heart. In whatever ways you are called to suffer inconveniences and trials for his sake, it's part of God's discipline for us as his people that we might become more like him, that we might be better prepared as his people for his kingdom to come, take heart and endure. That was the challenge for this church, as we have it in the rest of our verses. What does this discipline look like in practice? Come with me to verse 14, enduring discipline in practice. Therefore, sorry, verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. This is language taken from the ancient athletic arena. Only the Hebrew church right now, they're not exactly running the race. They're not on the track. They're not running the race of faith. Their hands are drooping. Their knees are weak. They're not on the track. They're in the triage tent. But they need to get back. They need to start running faithfully again, having been given this vital reminder. Yes, the trials are painful, but see the value of them as God will use them to grow you up as he sustains you to the end. But don't give up. Don't fall back to the point that you are are lost. Your, Your bones are irreparable. Now, they've got to get back on the track, running the race of faith again. And here they're told what that will look like. 
we're given some positives followed by some negatives. First, in verse 14, the positives. And the first command they're given, to pursue holiness even in the face of hostility, strive for peace with everyone. Now, the peace here, speaking of everyone, it is still speaking primarily about their relationships as a church body with one another, as those united in Christ in their struggle they were facing for him. They were not to be bogged down in useless, petty arguments, but rather united as they struggled on against this opposition. There are some arguments, there are some matters in the church that are certainly worthy of disagreements. We are never called as God's people to compromise our love for Christ, our faithfulness to his clear word for the sake of agreeing and getting along with others. But as a church, we are to put away our petty differences. We are to prize peace rather than seeking our own particular preferences and desires over and against one another in an unhelpful way. We're all different here this morning. We like different kinds of songs. We like different styles of preaching. And that's part and parcel of the way that God has made us. We're a diverse people. But we mustn't let our diversity get in the way of our peace that we share in Christ with one another. Let's not be careful to be so insistent or even get angry at one another over these smaller matters. We've got to be keen to preserve the unity that we share in Christ's blood as we struggle on for him together. That leads into the second mark here, carrying on in verse 14. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This Holiness here, it is practical. It is something that we work out, that we do as God's people. What God grows in us as we endure opposition faithfully. But we are warned here for those who just compromise every time. The minute the going gets tough, who are happy to, to say I follow Jesus on the pleasant days when it costs us nothing. But we immediately abandon any kind of living faith for Christ on the harder days, we are warned. Pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Such people will not see his kingdom. Yes, we are saved by nothing but God's grace, his undeserved favor to us in Christ. Yes, we are saved by nothing but depending on Christ as Savior and Lord. But if that is true of us, it will show, God will make it show, in a life that now desires to live with Christ and Lord and persevere for him even in the hard times. Now, we won't do that perfectly. I know I haven't done that perfectly. We will compromise at times. We will sin. But if we truly belong to him, we will not be quick to abandon him and remain away from him. We will seek holiness. We will seek to do what is right in his eyes. We will repent and believe and press on. That brings us on to the negatives that we are here to help one another avoid. See verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. This is the big danger for the Hebrew church. There were some in their midst who were in danger of not only giving up the race, not only coming off the track, but dragging others away with them. 
This root of bitterness that we see first mentioned much earlier in Deuteronomy 29, up on the screen. God is warning Israel not to disown him for a lesser love. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman, a clan or tribe, whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. This is the temptation that we are to actively guard one another against as we still live in a world full of false gods, false securities that that do appear attractive and do appear strong for a time. To resist the temptation to abandon Christ and the sufferings he calls us to and instead put our trust in those things. And we're given one tragic example here. A man who did lose what was most precious, what was effectively eternal because he abandoned God's promises for the sake of immediate relief and satisfaction. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessings, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Do you recall the story of the sons of Isaac? Foolish Esau, Crafty Jacob, Esau was the older brother. He was set to inherit the great blessing of God's promises given for Abraham. But having spent one day hunting tirelessly in the field, he comes back hungry and in his insatiable desire just to fill his tummy, he exchanged God's promised inheritance for a bowl of soup. And Jacob gets the blessing and not Esau because by the time Esau realizes the foolishness of his error, Isaac, his father, has already given the blessing to Jacob. Esau found no chance to repent, no chance to change his mind. And we are warned on the basis of his example, friends, do not exchange Christ, your Lord, the promise of life you have in his kingdom for all who trust and obey. Do not exchange him for anything of this world. Do not choose the comfort of of an ungodly relationship in this life. Do not choose the comfort of going along with the sinful status quo of your friends because it's that little bit easier. Do not forsake Christ for these things because if we do, then like the Hebrews, we will be in grave danger of making Esau's terrible mistake. Exchanging the promise of eternal rest in Christ for the fleeting comforts of this world that will never deliver. The Hebrews, they're encouraged to strive on Pursue holiness, even in times of hardship, because running the race to the end is the only thing that ultimately matters. Persevere. Don't perish. Now, I think if we're being honest here this morning with ourselves, the race that we're running right now for Christ as a church, on the whole, is a lot more bearable than the race that the Hebrews are having to endure here. Now, opposition from our family and our friends is painful. I know that only too well. But for the most part, I think we're not having our property plundered. We're not losing the ability to make a living on a daily basis, to feed our families. That's what the Hebrew church were enduring for Christ. You want to know what the most recent affliction of my heart was this past week? It had nothing to do with being a Christian. But simply the fact that the one team, the one team that really deserves to win the World Cup this year, for some bizarre reason, isn't even going to be playing in the final tonight. 
Football isn't coming home. The English squad are early. And that has pained my heart this past week. You see what I mean? Friends, for the most part, the hardships that we face right now for our faith as a church, though painful, yes, they are relatively mild compared to what those who have gone before us have suffered. What those every day in our nation elsewhere as a church suffer. Got a headline just yesterday. The church in Nigeria, another 2,000 martyred in the last 190 days as a result of militant Islam. That's what our brothers and sisters in the world are enduring for Christ. Friends, how much more should we be striving to live holy lives during this relatively peaceful time as the Malaysian church? Because you see, only as we endure faithfully for Christ now in these relatively peaceful times, as we put him first in our hearts and in our lives, when it hurts a bit, only then are we going to be trained and ready should God call us to suffer the greater afflictions that other Christians around the world are suffering right now. We'll never suffer as Christ did, but we are called where necessary to suffer in obedience to his name, to rejoice that even in the midst of suffering, we alone as Christians can know that God will use those times to bless us as his people. So friends, persevere. If you know that you're wavering this morning in the face of some opposition, you know you're compromising your love for Christ for the sake of a more comfortable time in the present, if you're this root of bitterness, you see it growing up in your heart, there's something other than Christ on the throne of your life. Repent before it's too late. Trust again in his blood to cleanse you and his spirit by this word to empower you to persevere on, to run the race knowing that whatever we suffer, for Christ's sake, God will use it to train us up. He will use it to better prepare us for eternal life to come. That's incomparably greater than anything we might be called to sacrifice now. Friends, just let's remember, no pain, no gain. And so let's press on faithfully for Christ this coming week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. It might be a word of rebuke for some. Great word of encouragement as well. That even as we are called to face afflictions and trials in order to remain faithful and rejoicing in Christ as Lord, you will use even those times to build us up and to grow us and bless us as your people. Help us. Lord, in the light of a world that says everything else but this, to believe this word and to live it out by your grace, that we would press on as the Hebrews are encouraged to here, we would run the race to the end. We would continue looking to the founder and perfecter of, of the faith, our Lord Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Strengthen us in these things, we pray, for his name's sake. Amen.